Hello, and welcome to Left, Right, and Sideways. My name is Max Handler, and I'm your token conservative. With me today on my left is Ruben Siegman. Hello, hello. And farther to my left is Jonah Klein-Barton. How's it going? And somewhere in the middle, Sam Klein. What's up, y'all? This podcast is produced by the Washington University in St. Louis Political Review, but none of the opinions expressed are representative of anybody other than those expressing them. Whooper is a multi-partisan organization that does not take institutional positions. Starting off our discussion today will be Ruben, who wants to talk to us about Afghanistan. Sure. Thanks for the introduction, Max. So what I wanted to talk about today is Trump's decision regarding to send more troops to Afghanistan, which is really interesting considering his campaign that, you know, he very adamantly tried to say that he was against the Iraq war, that he was, you know, anti-interventionist, and yet he kind of succumbed to all the military generals around him. And it leads us to the question of, is it really possible for the U.S. to get out of Afghanistan politically for a president? I think it's an interesting point to raise because you would think in some ways if anybody was going to do it, it would be Trump. This is a point uh, Matt Chrisman of Chapo Trap House raised. Uh, He was of the belief that because Trump was a Republican, it would theoretically be easier, especially because he ran on an anti-interventionist platform. And I think the real question that it raises, and something that I've been wondering about recently, is are there any hawks outside of Washington? Is there any base of voters who's really pro-intervention? Or is it really just the Washington establishment? I, I I don't know if there's people who are necessarily pro-intervention as much as they are... Um, a, a lot of people see uh, threats, they see ISIS, they see ISIS propaganda, and they, and they want to do anything we can. That's not even to say that ISIS has a strong presence in Afghanistan. I mean, but as, the point see, is, I, would, I would phrase it differently. I would say that you're not going to find people who call themselves hawks, but you're going to find a lot of people whose sense of the American military is so tied to their idea of American patriotism, right. and they would definitely call themselves patriots. And so for that reason, they would be in favor of military intervention. I mean, I think, like, as Trump put it, he said, like, we're not there to state build, we're there to kill terrorists. And so I think that's reflexive of the mindset of a lot of his voters, that he wants, or yeah, they like, want Trump to just liberal interventionism. Although at the same time, right, uh, you know, Trump obviously gave it a lot worse and without, I think, any real backing, but Trump's speech about staying in Afghanistan, that's not that different from the Obama administration policy on Afghanistan, right? The Obama administration said, we're staying in Afghanistan, not to nation build, we're staying there, you know, for transition, to kill terrorists, whatever. But I think it's a sign that it really is a somewhat intractable conflict, and I think that the idea that Trump ever could have gotten out of it is clearly, clearly was ludicrous. Uh, Just because of his clear reliance on generals who are going to be pro-intervention, and the fact that he really, I don't think, cares. I think it's not a policy position he really cares that deeply about, because I don't think there are policy positions he cares deeply about. Does it concern you, then, in the long run, how, like, we have James Mattis, who a lot of Democrats kind of supported being, you know, the defense secretary, who's only three years out you know, making these, a lot of these important decisions. Congress gave him a special waiver to serve as Secretary of Defense. Yeah, so does his position and kind of the 
deconstruction of, you know, that separation of civilian control of the military kind of concern you breaking down in the Trump administration? I would say no, just because I'd rather James Mattis be making military decisions yeah. than Donald Trump. That's one of the things we'd agree on. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. Some of the other uh, generals certainly concern me. I certainly was not, I'm certainly not a big fan of John Kelly, uh, the work that he's done, that he did with the Department of Homeland Security and right. ICE, when ICE is really kind of the only functioning part of the Trump government, uh, which I think was rather frightening. I think it's his favorite part, for sure. Uh, it's probably one of the only ones he cares about. I mean, throughout the whole campaign, he continuously said that uh, ICE endorsed him, even though ICE doesn't Does, endorse doesn't people. Endorse. Yeah. Going back to the idea about nation-building and removing a military presence, the only times, or the major times when we've been able to successfully withdraw have been after successful nation building. So like while ideologically, like you know I'm not a huge fan of going into places setting up their governments for them, is it really possible to take our troops out of somewhere without setting up that infrastructure first? Well, let me draw your attention to the um, Madeleine Albright and Stephen Hadley paper um, that they worked on for several years at their residency, I think at the Atlantic Council. Um, it was a new strategy for the Middle East where they talk about um, they don't really provide much of a strategy at all, but they say that in order to have lasting security um, in, and, and peace and economic prosperity in the Middle East, that it starts with the people and the human capital and building institutions, and that um, the American strategy should be in part to empower um, locals in, in the Middle East, in, in Afghanistan, and other places, to build those institutions. But at, at the same time, the first part of their plan, they say before we can get to all this, while we should start doing that, it can only really turn into high gear once we have actual military security and, and a base sort of level, a threshold of, of not like general peace in the region. I mean, that's also setting that's, up for how we see our societies. I think it's so much different in a place where, in Afghanistan where you have totally different communities in the mountains that have kind of different ways of sovereignty and governance. Yeah. And so I think that, like, those, you hear a lot about those papers that we need to build infrastructure, but you hear about them a lot without, right. you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I would so great they would have built. Yeah. yeah, I would entirely agree. And also it's contingent on having more uh, stability, which is, it's, it's very circular in that sense. And they don't really get, say how to do that because they're not um, as much military people as diplomats. Yeah. What do you think, one last question about Afghanistan, about like Trump not announcing how many troops or timelines, except for just saying that they'll be there until we kind of win, until we kill the terrorists? Bigly. Uh, I mean, it's pretty obvious he, he doesn't want to tie himself down, or at least his advisors don't want to be tied down. I honestly don't know why it matters. I, don't, I, I doubt really that there is any faction in the Republican Party that has any real power that would hold him to account for saying, we're only going to send... 2,000 troops, and then he sends 10,000. Stop it, hold him to account. Yeah, I, th yeah. I, think, that, I <laughs> think that's probably fair. I, I think we're probably in Afghanistan, and will we be out in my lifetime? Maybe. Depends on how long I live. Right. Now we're going to transition to our comrade, Jonah Klein-Barton, who's going to tell us about historical mm -hmm. revisionism and uh, Confederate statues in particular. Yeah, so right now we've been seeing a lot about Confederate statues, a lot of debate on what they represent, should they be taken down, how should that process go. 
it also is coming up to Labor Day, or it might already have been Labor Day by the time we get this online. Either way, also a topical issue, and there's been a lot of debate about the history and significance of both of these. Um, and just wanted to talk about sort of how the national mythos of different things impacts people's positions on them when it comes to policy. So Confederate statues, there's the idea that these were put up to remember the generals. Um, in actuality, a lot of them were put up in the 1920s and 1960s with the, in the 20s, uh, along with the rise of the resurgence of the KKK, and in the 60s as a sort of revolt against the civil rights movement. Right. Um, so just, I guess, first get people's opinions on how you think that has or if it has impacted the discussion of these. I, I, just whenever this, this discussion comes up, to me the most mind-boggling thing is always the, the people who, who say things like, well, can you name like a, like a person from that time period who wasn't a racist, who didn't hold those beliefs? And it's like, yes, any, any black person, essentially, right? Yeah. It's, a, it's a bizarre idea that um, you, you can only build statues of white people. Uh, and I think it's, it's deeply indicative of the, conservatives, the conservative movement's views on race that they, they will defend to the death the, this, any statue of Robert E. Lee, but have no problem with the fact that Steve Mnuchin will not commit to keeping Harriet Tubman on the $20, on the $20 bill. Yeah. Like, nobody would think of it unless they brought it up that they're thinking about not keeping Harriet Tubman on it. You, you just lose politically by bringing it up. It's, it's just everything the Trump administration does, it seems, is just a massive self-own. They just continuously shoot themselves in the foot over things they really, really just have no need to do. This is more than the administration, right. though. I'd say that this is even more Trump's base rather than his administration, which has gone into just ignoring when these statues were built and sort of the historical significance of what they mean. These were statues put up in order to intimidate black people. In exactly. Many, most of them were. The majority. Yeah, the, yes. right. Yeah. yeah. The issue, uh, and I know I, I've talked to people about this, is that the, the kind of lost cause revisionism worked. Yeah. Um, right? Pe people, for, I don't mean to generalize here, but uh, a lot of people in the South really do believe that these were honorable men. They believe that. They, I have, I have spoken to black people from the South who believe that they're, okay. they were well, very well, honorable men. Uh, but. At the end of the day, right, these are people who believe that the statues are worth keeping, and they really care about this issue. Yeah. And I worry that with a lot of these issues, like with a lot of these issues, it's really an enthusiasm gap, uh, where I think that the people who care about keeping those statues up care about it a whole heck of a lot more than the people who care about taking them down. Sure. Um, so as I, I did a lot of reading of primary source material during the Civil War um, on, from, from soldiers and nurses who were both in service of the, the North and the traitorous South. Um, yeah, to prepare for your reenactment, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, no, I, I was, so I was doing research for a professor who's, who's working on a book about it, and, and it was very interesting to hear about the reasons why some people would choose the North or the South. And so as a white person from a state that's south of the Mason-Dixon line, but not southern by any stretch of the imagination. Sam is from Maryland. That's right. Um, it's 
I, I think that for some of these statues that were built not long after the Civil War, right? Like, in, in Reconstruction. Um, yeah. like Which the, is a whole nother topic. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. But and, I'm, and I'm not saying that anyone who was fighting in the Civil War wasn't defending slavery cause funda- uh, uh, from the South. Because fundamentally, if you were fighting for the South, you were a traitor to the state, and you were fighting a war that was primarily about slavery. You're that willing is, to die... For, for to the institution for of the peculiar yeah. institution of slavery, right? So, I'm not gonna. I, I just I just felt the need to say that first. That said, a lot of people who the, the Civil War split families, and 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 quite literally, members of the same family would would go on one side or the other because they felt something, and and in their writings and materials, it wasn't often it was about slavery, right? Absolutely despicable, but. But sometimes people felt an allegiance to their state or to their to the place where they were from, their community, and so that's why they were fighting in the Civil War. Because you, see, back then people identified more with the state of Virginia than with the United States. And, and so that's not to say that we should be keeping all these statues at all. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that there's a, there is a case to be made that some, you know, so, like pride in the South while the while the Civil War was about slavery, like there are other reasons why some people bravely fought in it, and and that's not something that we can just I, but I under the rug. That's sort of the whole point I had wanted to bring up was that a lot of these statues are not about commemorating the South; they're about commemorating specifically white supremacy. And right. intimidating. I agree. At, I agree. If you and look at when they were black built people. and what the direct reasons and who built them right like this is why they were built and sort of taking the argument back to some people were defending their state is recontextualizing it in a light that allows it to be defended rather than the light in which they were actually also listening to no i I agree with that completely and that's why i was saying like you know most of these statues were built in the 20th century and and that's like actually they it's just such a it's such a slap and it's so disgusting that that happened but there are also some that, you know, again, were built before then and that are commemorating, like, the common, you know, soldier. Also, and, and, and also a lot of those were carbon copies of ones built in the North, which is kind of funny. I think it's important to, in addition, like, listen not only to, like, you know, the Southerners, white Southerners who, you know, defend this, but also oh, the, yeah. the black people that, like, live in these towns and what it's like to actually, like, have to walk by a statue right. of somebody that, like, thought that you should be a slave. Right. Van Newkirk, I want to say, for The Atlantic, has, like, a wonderful article about growing up in that thing. And on a secondary level, too, like, it's it's embarrassing for the South, like, when people say this is heritage. Like, there are so many better things about the South to commemorate as somebody who's quasi from the South. (laughs) Ruben is from Florida. The southern part, though, so not too... uh, South Central. Tampa. Tampa. Yeah. But I've been north, in North Florida. He's He's made the trek. Diverse state, wonderful state, best state, Florida. The point is that there's a lot more to Southern culture, and it's, like, so sad to just shrink it down to... To the Confederate, Confederate flag yeah. and to those... Yeah, I, I completely like agree. It's, it's nuts. Yeah. Part, part beyond, you know, the, the racism and the just whole kind of vileness of the whole thing, part of what really bothers right. me is I hear a lot of people make... Mention kind of what you did, Sam, about, you know, people were fighting for their community and you feel compelled by your community to represent your community. So really, these Southerners weren't that bad and that... that oh, I... I okay. Well, no, I'm not saying that's what you're... Right. That's not what you're saying. But a lot of people make that yeah. argument. 
Uh, and it just bothers the hell out of me as a conservative because theoretically conservatism is about personal responsibility. Yeah, individual and, right. And all of these people are essentially, are essentially, you know, it's a sort of kind of soft bigotry of low expectations thing. Well, you know, we can't really have expected the average southerner to have taken the time to think about what they were fighting for. Look, I understand and I'm sure that it's accurate that there were immense amounts of societal pressure to fight for the South. But it's undeniable that, A, there were Southern people who chose not to fight. Right. There were right. Southern regiments in the Union Army. And B, at the end of the day, you're fighting to defend slavery. Right, and we should, that should not be memorialized. There's, there is no way around that. And I right. feel no need to have memorials to the average Southern soldier. No matter what pressure they were under, yeah. at the end of the day, you have a moral imperative to not fight to defend slavery. Yeah. And the idea that anybody could you know, argue against it. I mean, the U.S. Oh, yeah. was way behind on this issue, and somehow the Confederacy was yeah. even behind, you know, the right. rest yeah, of the like U.S. The on North, that. The yeah. North no, was I agree. not I couldn't any agree glowing more. bastion on this one. They were still far behind the times. Yeah, I think we're all in agreement yeah. here. Gonna all move right. it to the next part of historical revisionism, which I'm expecting a bit more pushback on. Um, and that's the thing about Labor Day, because we are one of very few countries that has Labor Day on a date other than May 1st. Right. Which is really interesting because the reason why the international community has their Labor Day on May 1st, May Day or International Workers' Day, is actually because of an event that happened in the U.S. that other countries still commemorate and we have chosen to ignore and even intentionally bury, and that's the Haymarket Affair. Um, when labor organizers who were trying to get the standard work week that we now all take for granted unless you work in investment banking or a service job that requires you to still work more than that because unions have lost their power. Um, Let's go. Yeah, so... And, and others. There are more yeah. jobs as well. Yeah. But you might have forgotten by now, but Max, to the listener, um, but Max is in fact a conservative. <laughs> oh, it's going to it's gonna come back big on this unions discussion. Yeah, I'm sure. So anyways, um, <laughs> this is when... Labor organizers were fired on by police uh, after giving a speech. They were disrupted. Um, a bomb was thrown in the middle of a crowd, and this whole event was used as an excuse to then round up labor organizers of the Chicago community and basically killed the Chicago labor movement. Um, international communities still remember this, They've made the Labor Day or their version of Labor Day on May 1st to memorialize this. Uh, not only has the U.S. moved Labor Day to now, um, they also weren't even going to recognize it as an official holiday until there was a push for it to be on May 1st. And forget which president it was, but one of them decided, okay, we'll put it over here and make it an official day so that it won't be then. And then made another day, um, have you ever heard of Loyalty Day? Oh, this is the loyalty thing, yeah, day it sounds like official, something that Trump would like. Loyalty Day is an official, uh, American holiday, national holiday, on May 1st. Uh, it was introduced during the first Red Scare as a way to make, <laughs> just even more make sure that no one in the U.S. felt like they could comfortably memorialize the labor movement on that day. Wow. That, that, that's really interesting to me. Um, it's also funny how in America, Labor Day is on the least worker-friendly. Like, they, they always have it on a Monday. On a Monday, So yeah. that instead of having, like, a four-day weekend, if it was on a Tuesday or a Thursday, you only get a three-day weekend. Because, um, you know, they just give you the Friday off, too. Um, yeah, that's 
that's especially compelling also because it you know for an event that happened in America we're the only yeah. ones uh, not not the only not the okay yes but like we like, are we are Canada Australia right possibly two or three other countries but like the majority of Europe of Africa of Asia have their Labor Days on May first I, I also think it's interesting that you know when we have Memorial Day for instance or Veterans Day not that those are you know in the same realm like plane of existence as Labor Day right those commemorate people who served and people who fell while serving um, but on most other federal you know government holidays we 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 know what they're for, and it's in part of the national conversation that you know there's an ad, Boeing takes out a full page ad in the Washington Post. It's it's a very it's very much like here's why we're we're not it's just not getting just the day off. Here, yeah, here's why we're getting the day off. Um, here's here's what we're why this exists. Labor Day, school starts. That's when when if you ask people what they the think of, of Labor Day, yeah, that I I bet my bottom dollar that it's it's the end of summer, it's the start of the school year, all that stuff. Uh, Labor, there's no association with, with the labor movement. And it's interesting that you brought up service in terms of Memorial Day and Veterans Day because when it did start, um, even with how much the government tried to sort of move it off of the original topic, it was still seen in the 50s as a memorial of the service that laborers do for the country. And so... From then till now, even that part of it has been it, erased. It's a, it's a real statement, and I imagine we'll get into this earlier, but I personally am of the opinion that a lot of the failures of the... Later? Did I say earlier? Later. We'll get into it later. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this is revisionist history. That's true. So. Maybe, maybe I'm going back and changing it. Uh, but I think, <laughs> I think that a lot of the failures of the modern Democratic Party can be traced to the weakness of labor. Um, I'd agree. I, it's, it's stunning quite frankly, the collapse of labor in this country. To the, We're almost at the point where I think that if we had a president more competent than Trump, I, I think it would probably almost be a certainty that we right would get, a, we would get a national right-to-work right right to law. For sure. um, the, the Supreme Court certainly, I think, is, is set up in such a way and will probably change in the future in such a way that labor will continue to be weakened. Amazing what Republican obstructionism can do to the court. Yeah, I, th I, I think labor has also done a fairly good job of putting itself out of business. Um, right, like, I think a big reason for the fall of, of labor, labor unions in almost every industry um, with with a few exceptions, has been the over in, in labor unions have tended to overexert their influence. I think to the detriment of their own members. It's, it's less market years. failure and more just people forgetting what unions do. Like people take a lot of the things that unions fought tooth and nail for as just given now at this yeah, point, right. um, and forget that's how a good point. We got there in the first place, and how easily those could be erased. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think also it's important that, like, if you're doing your job as a good union, like, and protecting, like, most of your workers, like, you are then for reform in the long run. Like, in the short one run, like, hurt, yeah, hurting one employee, like, isn't good. But in the long run, if you want to have, a, like, a safe, healthy union and, you know, workers... Yeah, again, I'm not saying reform. that unions can do no wrong. I'm saying of that course, unions as an institution in the U.S. have been more of a force for good than others. So you're saying you're a utilitarian? 
Oh, I'm always more of a utilitarian than not. I just try to hide it most of the time. Yeah, Max, you, you do you want to add one time. closing point? <laughs> the, next. the last word. Are you? Yeah. Unions took from us child labor and returned to us the five-day work week. I think that's a losing trade every time. Uh, so now we're going to move on to our good friend Sam Klein, who wants to start a little discussion about birdie bros. Good? <laughs> bad? Ugly? What are your maybe. thoughts? Um, yeah, so I think Bernie is, is not, is, is good for the Democratic Party, absolutely. I think it's important to have pressure from, from the extremes in, in any party because what it does is it, it as, as the moderate in the room, I think it's important to have um, a voice of progress on the left and also a voice of principled conservatism on the right. Um, it's funny, I haven't been hearing that one recently. Yeah, right. Well, well. so, right, I, I think that in the end of the day, what it does is it encourages the best ideas to come out of each side, and then the, through the process of cooperation, you get to a good moderate point. But you or don't you get don't, to that good moderate point by having Sa- both parties do the same Sam thing. Is, Sam is essentially doing a very nice job of, of phrasing the, in very euphemistic terms, what I would view as the Democratic Party's position towards the left, which is, Oh, we love we love when the left shouts very loudly and pressures us, but also they should shut up and we should you know never actually listen to any of their policy ideas and uh, we should self sabotage sure. Obamacare because Max Baucus you know he just really isn't all about single payer guys he really doesn't want universal health care well he just wanted something and it was better than nothing so well, we're, right. control- well, we're not going to relitigate we're not going to there's so many things that we could relitigate and so, we've already decided what we're going to relitigate is is the primaries right because that's li- there's literally nothing that everybody loves more than relitigating the primaries no we're going to look ahead also, to the next primary. really healthy for the future of the party yeah but well let's look here, at, let's look at the democratic bench right so who's who do we have lined up who could challenge the worst president in history. So here's, here's we, uh, we have, you know... We have Cory Booker. We've got Cory Booker, who is, you know, the definition of an empty suit politician. The best, the known best for... description I've, had of, I've heard of Cory Booker, um, I, I think Zach, um, the head of college Republicans, said this, but it, it could have been someone else, that Cory Booker is the Marco Rubio of the Democratic Party. I, he is all, all you're like, giving... words and no substance. No, no, no. Marco Rubio is just so much worse on so many levels. Like, you could say that Cory Booker is trying to pull a Marco Rubio, but let's not... Let's not put them near the same. Yeah, as far true. as I know, Marco Rubio They're both was never... smart people. They're both really smart people. Yes. They're both gifted politicians. Marco Rubio was never interacting with porn stars on Twitter, and the Venezuelan government has not put out a hit on Cory Booker. <laughs> I will defend Marco Rubio to the death because that was one of the first votes I cast was for him in the presidential primary. How do you All right. feel now? Uh, I feel mostly shame, mostly a <laughs> good, deep, good, good. deep ball of sadness. More than usual. But I think actually, you know, with, with Don't the... Don't worry, I have the same feeling. I think we all really should, but, you know, I think the Democrats really have some great candidates. They've got, uh, you know, Kamala Harris, uh, best, no, no. Best, best known so for, Harris for defending is... the right of prosecutors to totally fabricate confessions, sure. uh, a huge supporter of uh, the American uh, prison system. Uh, I think that's a real positive because when you're looking at progressive voters, right. what do they want? They want people who have continued to enforce mass incarceration. Uh, and they want people who had to be dragged every single day just so that they could finally say that they could support single payer at a time when that's an enormously popular policy position that every single Democrat should be back to Max I'm having so many sponsored yeah. ads right now of her saying I support oh, yep. single payer. Yep. Yeah, she so... she's she's trying very hard to rebrand as a progressive. 
Yeah, she's so not. She well, well, I mean, if you look like what are the highest profile events that that senators have been in lately? It's it's like the the, the, the hearings, right? The sessions and the Comey stuff. And she was like a total firebrand out there, and it, and it, it, I think it elevated her. So profile so was uh, Kirsten Gillibrand from New York. Clearly... So, so so Gillibrand is like so to correct her pronunciation. She she <laughs> is like, whoa rumored. whoa. She she is like definitely rumored to be up there, but I think she comes from that like she was. I think she was the only senator to vote against. Um, Mad yeah, yeah, uh, which Mad was, Dog, which was dumb. I, yeah, I would agree. So, so, I, yeah, I think Gillibrand comes from that same side of the party. That's just it's too, it's 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 un- so unelectable in a general election. Well, 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 the the Democratic Party that's needs. What they said about given that Trump is not going to be the nominee in twenty twenty, I see. I sincerely believe he will not be the twenty twenty nominee. But if, that's if that's not, let me put it this I way: I I will I you know I I will put the caveat in front of this that I was wrong about basically everything in terms of predictions for the election. I say this with supreme confidence. If Donald Trump wishes to run in 2020, not only will he run... He's already running for it. He will win. And he will win somewhat handily, I suspect. Uh, The Democratic Party needs a message, right? The Republican Party has shown that it, it can essentially function without a message. It can function without really getting that much done in terms of delivering on promises to its base. And the Democratic Party lost the election because they did not have a message beyond being they, anti-Trump. No, it's not that they don't. They need a message. Before they need a message, they need a they deal. need something that they all have in common. Right now, they have nothing in common except for that anti. But, no, but pa- I think, I part think of that, that is a message, right? Yeah, you the need, Republicans showed that you can bring a bunch of different groups together if you have a single united message, even like if you hating Obama. Or, but the, I don't think the Republicans showed that at all because they haven't done anything in the policy no, realm besides putting up a anything. Well, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. The Republicans have obviously had some major policy. Oh, I, I, yeah, in the bureaucracy. They've had some huge successes yeah. uh, and stuff that really only the Washington establishment cares about. Yeah. Uh, but, they can't, but they can't get tax reform through, right? They can't get health care through. That's true, but right, the thing that no one really wants to admit is that health, any chance of stopping Obamacare died in 2012, and now we're 10 or 15 years well, away from single Because it's actually kind of working for most people. Yeah. Yeah, because it's not a bad law. I think that this is a good example, though, of how... Obamacare is a step towards single-payer. That is something that I definitely see as something that the U.S. is going towards. The Democratic Party just has to understand that this is an okay thing to be in favor of now. They- I think also going back to the larger thing about having a bench, I think it's important that the party actually goes and recruits good candidates because I think that's one of the things that's John lacking Ossoff. too. I what yeah, I'm like hearing is that they're actual really good competitive primary state elections. They've state, yeah. Democrats need to start pulling governors to run for president. That's the thing. Because are you bullish on Bullock? No, I'm bullish on Hickenlooper. Maybe because no, I'm I'm, I'm completely serious. Um, or or Deval Patrick, who's Obama's pick, right? Michael I, Bloomberg. Sam is getting. Stuck. Bloomberg was never I, the I governor. Like Deval Patrick, except for everything he pulled around the Olympics in Boston, but that's another conversation. Deval Patrick could never run for president because he is one of the most annoying people to listen to. For those of you who do not know, Deval Patrick has a voice that's roughly as whiny as mine. But but the point is that that. There really isn't a, a democratic bench of of experienced, especially with executive experienced, prominent people who don't have a ton of baggage. And and at the end of the day, like yes, while the Democrats do need a message, and they, they they've been trying with right like Chuck Schumer and 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 Pelosi, they have their whole like 
Um, th- what what is it called? Like a better, a better deal. deal. Yeah, but right? we all we all of- we can all admit here that suck that like sucks. Ass. So so what what do you propose? It's, that's policy oriented. Single right? payer healthcare. No, we, we don't Liter- want an explicative. On this. Lit- literally, literally every single Democrat should run on passing single payer healthcare. But that you can't. They can't afford that. Why not? It doesn't matter. What single do- payer healthcare? Do you know how much single payer healthcare? What, what was? Before, what, wait, before no, no, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. What? Yeah. How did you watch Donald Trump? Run for president, saying he was gonna he's gonna build a wall with Mexico. He's gonna make them pay for it and promise thing right. after th- no. Hold on, seriously, okay. promise thing after thing after thing that it was obvious he could never deliver. And also, by the way, none of these things were really that good, right? Wait, wait, but so not why? Here, wait, why? All right, let me, why let me can't respond. Let wait? Me hold respond. on, let me finish. Yeah. Why can't the Democratic Party just run candidates who say we want to give everyone cheap health care for like? Why can't that be the, why they can't they, Why can't we just have a bunch of Democrats say, we want world peace and no famine? Like, I, I don't just want a Democrat to win the White House. I want, I want a good Democrat to win the White like, House. I want a good president. I don't, do, I don't just want a president who has the same party label uh, as I do. Like, right? Like, I, I don't think it's, it's productive. I, if I were a Republican, Republicans are saying Donald Trump isn't, he's no Republican, right? Like, the, Democrat, the Republican Party is trying to disavow their own president. I don't think it's very valuable to have a, a, a Democrat in, in office who isn't, like, smart and principled and a good leader. I mean, I think we also shouldn't compare single-payer to the wall, because I think there's... I'm not different one that actually does and I think, something. Yeah, for... The I agree, I'm saying, I'm talking about idealism. No, 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 the wall I creates guns, I understand that. I mean, I think that you have to turn out... You want to get into infrastructure talks? You have to turn out the grassroots, and I think that's really important, to fire up the Trump grassroots again. Trump did it, Hillary didn't. Yeah, no, in the Democratic Party. Really. We, no, no, I'm saying that we should actually really appeal to our core voters, appeal to the poor, appeal to people of color that consistently vote Democratic, the, and try to increase turnout. The, the, the Democratic Party, particularly the Hillary Clinton campaign, had this bizarre idea that there was this, like, mass of, like, slightly center, center-right people who, like, voted for Romney who were just, like, so repulsed by Trump, they were going to vote for, like, the person that Republicans have spent 20 years proclaiming is, like, the most evil person on earth. Well, and not only... There, there just aren't these, like, conservative, independent, like, swing voters who are going to swing to the Democratic Party. Yeah, there the are. Biggest, no, I know. No, there are. It's the biggest thing the Democratic imagination, yeah. that there are these, like, ideal people. Because I think right now, like, you either <laughs> are... If you've, like, had this much of the Trump presidency and you're unsure, I don't know how many people there are like that. Like, if you're not for Trump, you've already been, like, convinced by his actions. And but most Trump voters Trump weren't train. for Trump, right? No, like, yes, bigger, Trump has 75% But you're willing because, to vote for Because they were against, against Hillary Hillary more. Yeah, that's why, right, the Democratic Party just, these people won't vote Democratic. Well, they no, won't. I think that that's, that's the thing that the Clinton campaign especially messed up their calculations on was they just assumed that a lot of these groups that are very loyal to the party um, will continue to vote Democrat and not only vote Democrat, but go through all of these hoops that have been imposed with voter ID laws, things that make it much more difficult to vote for a candidate that hasn't spoken to their issues, that ignored them at basically every chance she was given... Um, I don't know if that's uh, but just but just assumed this level of loyalty from these groups without going right to without them, going like, to Michigan to Wisconsin right? no no not even to Michigan to Wisconsin no. but going more to black churches why to going why to why, why in the also, world I think we're was... disillusioning ourselves if we think in 2020 all these people that just hated Clinton so much that they voted for Evan McMullen or whoever the heck that you know their conscience felt 
you know, satisfied by, that they're going to somehow vote for a Democrat in 2020, especially if we think that that Democrat, you know, is tossing around single payer. No, I the Democrats put up, that's what I'm saying. If the Democrats put up a moderate who is, a, who is principled on some issues, but still willing to reach across the aisle, right, someone who is smart and not seen as, as a compromiser, but someone seen as, as someone who, who wants... Somebody, so somebody, somebody, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. across the aisle who's not seen as a compromiser... When I say, I said compromiser is, as, like, compromising on their principles. I'm, I'm so saying he's like a great negotiator. So he... Uh, president deals, baby. He's <laughs> back at it. Um, but, right, so I'm literally, right... I'm the Republican Hillary Clinton was trying to recruit, right? I'm a person who was repulsed by Trump. I did not like his policy positions. In a lot of ways, I was maybe closer to Hillary Clinton's policy positions You're than right his. You're voting for her? No. I will... There is quite literally nothing that Trump could do that would make me regret my vote for him. And right. with that, I Our, think we'll oh, move wait, on to Oh, wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Let me, let me rephrase that because I said vote for him. <laughs> there is literally nothing that Donald Trump could do that would make me regret not voting for Hillary Clinton. And with that, let's move to Max's section. All right. So, I'm here to talk about something that I think will potentially also be uh, a little bit uh, a little bit frictional, cause a little disagreement, uh, and that is the rumors that Donald Trump is going to end the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood uh, Arrivals. Childhood arrivals. Uh, I would consider myself certainly more pro-immigrant than most Republicans. I am probably anti-deporting children, which is probably a bold position to take, but nonetheless... I would have to say I'm probably pleased with this. Um, I very much have been worried. Uh, I wasn't really politically conscious at the time, but obviously the Bush presidency started a massive expansion of executive power. Obama continued it. Uh, and I very much doubt that Donald Trump will do much to end it, especially considering this uh, very weak Congress. But I think that it should worry us all that the president could potentially have the power to essentially enact law uh, without any input from the people. And I think that if you are concerned about Donald Trump ending DACA, I think what's more concerning is that he had the power to do something like that in the first place. Just even like from a conservative Even from a conservative perspective. I think that right. it, it, is, it would be much better if Congress were in charge of making laws. So you want Congress to expel I, all the children? I would prefer Congress didn't expel all the children. I would when prefer he, Congress pass laws protecting them. Reintroduce the Dreamers Act with, yep. I want to say, for Dick Durbin. We recently. could. We very well, by the way, under the Obama presidency, we could have had immigration reform yep. if the Democrats hadn't ruined it. Uh, I'll, I'll take you up on that afterwards. No, go for it right now. <laughs> go there's, for it there's, now. There's nothing in here. Go for it. Well, okay, so what, how, how did Democrats sink that bill? Uh, so maybe we can link it in the description here, but there's a very, very good ProPublica piece uh, that I was actually just rereading the other night, almost like I was preparing, um, that was about the process shortly after the 2012 election. There had been some discussions beforehand in the House about a potential compromise bill, and they figured after Obama won in 2012, look, we need to do something on this. We need to move on this. And it was a bipartisan group of about four Democrat Democratic House members, four Republican House members, including uh, rural Labrador from Idaho, who was a big Tea Party guy. Uh, and they basically they went to work on creating an immigration bill. At the same time, the Senate was also going to work on an immigration bill. And the Obama White House had a choice. And they decided we're going to ignore the House bill. 
we're just going to go all in on the Senate bill. And that was a terrible, terrible, terrible political miscalculation because John Boehner was under immense pressure to invoke the Hastert yeah, rule, which he then was, did. This was where you really saw the split with the Tea Party gaining control. Over. Yeah, it was yeah, huge. Especially. But we absolutely, I mean, if you, you can read the article, and I think yeah, it, I, I think it's pretty persuasive. I think we could have had it. I think that what you what you see is that John Boehner was very willing to let the Republican members of this group negotiate. He said, go and do whatever you want, and then we After will get together. Right? Yeah. We will get right. together, and we will sell this to our colleagues. And the Democrats, for every single individual thing, they had to go back to Nancy Pelosi and say, can we give them this concession? Can we give them this concession? And it was essentially a process like pulling teeth. And at the end... I see now. At the end, they were stuck with trying to pass this Senate bill that was... Yeah, is it closer to what Barack Obama wanted? Is it closer to his ideal policy? Yeah, it was. But there was just never any chance that it was going to pass. And if the White House had gotten behind Democrats in the House, I think we could have had immigration reform. Now, I say that, and I blame it on Obama, I'm being a little bit glib. If we're being honest, a large part of the reason that we do not have immigration reform in this country is because the idea that a lot of people in the House have about immigration reform, if they're Republicans, is that we should not have any immigrants. Um, Well, and so I'm actually really glad that you're saying that you're anti-deporting children because I remember about this time two years ago, you were arguing to get rid of the 14th Amendment. uh, Well, I think that there are concerns. I I don't really think there are concerns about birthright citizenship, but when you're in campus crossfire, when you're in the heat of the moment, you've got to say crazy things. You've got to get a a rise out of people. Um, But, yeah, the the immigration debate is mind-boggling to me, but I think that this... DACA and DAP, I think, really, to me at least, I see as an issue of how much power ought the president to have. And to go deeper on it, it's a reason that I take almost none of the opposition to Donald Trump from the left very seriously. Uh, Anytime someone says, I'm so mad that he's ending DACA, well, why did he have the power to end it in the first place? I'm so mad that Donald Trump is, you know, going to attack the free press. I'm so mad that he's going to do all these different things. You should be mad, if you were being consistent, you should have been mad when Barack Obama did a lot of the same things. And what you really should be mad about is the expansion of executive power. And I fundamentally think that a lot of people on the left, and I think it's almost certainly true of people on the right as well, they don't really care. What do you think yeah, about... Wait, 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 wait. Also, I think you have to then go back to this, to Bush, but I also... Oh, think you're I, giving, absolutely. I, I said that I think you're start. giving Obama too much credit in expanding executive power. I, what do you think about the court's role in this and where they should stop or have not stopped. Uh, in the court's power. role... Well, so I think the court has given way, way, way too much deference to executive agencies, right? Executive agencies get to pass their own laws. They get to enforce well, their own laws. They the get... Regulations. They're essentially laws, right? It's rulemaking, rule, it's rulemaking is, right? Yeah. Uh, and they're the, you know, they're the judge, jury, and executioner. The, the EPA, and you know, gets to publish whatever it wants, and then they're like, this is how we want to interpret it. And they can change that on a whim. And Not on a whim. There's actually a tremendous process. Like, for the EPA, it will take the Trump administration, like, at least three or four years to yeah. change some of these rules that have been... It's amazing outrageous. how much somebody right. can talk about, like, overwhelming government bureaucracy on one hand, and then switch to, oh no, the executive branch is yeah. doing all of these things so quickly. Yeah, I just I just fundamentally re- reject your premise that... that we we should blame Obama for 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 unilaterally passing immigration reform instead of going through Congress because because at the end of the day this happened after right like in 2012 but 
it's it's indicative of what um, what Mitch McConnell said when Obama was first elected, which is our number one goal for our next session of Congress but, is to make so sure this, that President is to obstruct everything the president tries to this, do. If the president doesn't have a Congress willing to negotiate, then yeah, he's going to do things on his own to make the country better, even if it's only for four or eight years. And then ultimately, yes, that's that's possibly you know overridden by the next president, but it comes at a cost because overriding a current policy requires an expenditure of capital, right? And it, and it's often met with resistance in the bureaucracy, as Ruben was saying. The, the, this view just annoys me so much. It's such a fundamental misunderstanding of the role of the president. When Barack Obama was elected president, that, I mean, people view it as this, but it really does not mean that Congress is in any way obligated to pass his legislation. They're not obligated to compromise with him. The only thing that Congress is ob obligated to do is to respond to the concerns of their constituents. And I think it is very and clear... And pass budgets and all that, which they also can't do. Well, it's very what clear to me... confirming nominees? That too. Why? Or holding hearings on nominees. Why? Point me to where in the Constitution it says... Really, point me to where in the Constitution that it says that the Republican Congress was required to give Merrick Garland a hearing. I wish they had, and I wish that they had done it and embarrassed and rejected him for the, I think, totally unqualified nominee that he was. <laughs> um, what? I, we're right. not going to, we're not, we'll we're not going to, next time. That's for we're, another time. We'll, right. we'll re-legislate that another time. But I, I think fundamentally, right, the job of the president is to enact the laws that Congress passes. It is not the job of the president to make Congress do what he wants. He, I should say, he or she wants. Um, and I think that it's a fundamental misunderstanding of the way that American government is designed, and it's a fundamentally dangerous view to vest so much power in one person. No one man should have all that power, is what you're saying. I would absolutely Kanye. agree. 2020, Kanye, he's the voice the Democrats that's, need. That's the best. Uh, let, me, let me say this. Would he run as a Democrat? The only Democrat no, I would vote for, for the only Democrat I would vote for is Kanye West. And with that... I think that does it for this this edition of Left, Right, and Sideways. Um, from the right, Max Handler. Thank you for listening. From the left, Ruben Sigmund. Great time as always. Further to the left, Jonah Kleinbart. I'm really impressed if you got this far through. Yeah, congratulations. I'm Sam Klein from Sideways. Um, <laughs> have a good one. We'll yeah. catch you next time. Thank you all for listening. Subscribe, rate five stars. All the things. All the things. If you are interested in advertising opportunities... Oh, nope. All right, man, we're done. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>